Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 45, Triple Division. This week we take a little detour to catch up with our friends in Rome, the Popes. Don't worry, the Popes are no longer all goody-two-shoes. We're back to the usual shenanigans of murder, backstabbing, betrayal and the Normans. But before we start, just a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Trevor, Peter and Michael who've already signed up. Let us just recap where we are. In 1130, Lothar III had managed to get the upper hand against the Hohenstaufen brothers, Frederick and Conrad. In Germany, the city of Speyer and its Hohenstaufen garrison had been besieged for six months and surrendered at Christmas 1129. From then on, Frederick was on the defensive and gradually lost ground. Meanwhile, his brother Conrad had gone to Italy to find new allies, money and possibly even an imperial crown. That endeavour had failed utterly and he was now back home, defending his ever-shrinking lands against Lothar's incursions. Apart from the much-diminished Hohenstaufen, all secular and ecclesiastical princes recognized Lothar III as their king and future emperor. The natural next step was to make a journey to Rome and to be crowned emperor. For a coronation, you need a pope. When Lothar started considering his coronation in 1130, there was no shortage of popes anymore. In fact, he had two to choose from. Oh no, a schism. Again? Yes, but this time it had nothing to do with any imperial policy screw-up. No, we're just back to old habits. For the first time since 1046, the Romans managed to mess up the papacy all by themselves. To explain that, I probably need to go back to the last time we talked about the papacy, which was around 1122 when Henry V signed the Concordat of Worms. The Pope who had signed the Concordat was Calixtus II. He, but more so his predecessors Gelasius II and Paschalis II, had been struggling to keep control over the city of Rome itself. The underlying issue was that the inhabitants of Rome were wondering how useful the Pope really was to their city. Before the Gregorian reform, the Pope had a very clearly defined purpose for the locals, in particular the local aristocrats. This was a financial purpose, obviously. You met these guys and you know that most of them served no spiritual purpose whatsoever. In financial terms, the papacy had three main sources of income that local aristocrats could latch onto. The first source of funds were the papal states. Now these are the territories in the centre of Italy around Rome, but also extending north as far as Ravenna and the Emilia-Romagna. The papacy claimed ownership based on the most impactful fake document in European history, the so-called Donation of Constantine which, by the way, people in the 12th century already knew was a fake. The second money spinner were the pilgrims, who came to Rome to see the sites of St. Peter and St. Paul's martyrdom, as well as the many churches and their powerful relics. And then there was the third income stream. These were the large legal fees and the even more extravagant bribes plaintiffs and defendants paid to the papal court, the curia. The curia was the court of last instance for all disputes within the church, as well as issues of canon law like, for instance, the dissolution of marriages. As we look at these from the perspective of a Roman noble, 
Wondering whether having a Pope in Rome is a necessity? The picture looks as follows. As for the papal lands, it does not really matter whether the Pope is in Rome or not. The holdings the Popes actually controlled were by and large in fief to some Roman aristocrat or other a long time ago, and most of the economic value was going to them already. As for the pilgrims, yes, the Pope was a useful thing, conducting mass, etc., but it was really about the relics, and they weren't going nowhere. Well, unless some imperial raider stole some. The court fees are different. For that, you need the Pope present in Rome. Before the Gregorian reform, cases were not particularly frequent, but the judges were predominantly Romans, i.e. a chunk of the fees and the bribes went straight into their pockets. The expansion of the role of the Pope under Gregory VII and his successors meant the papal curia was now much more involved in church affairs across Europe, resulting in a lot more cases coming to be judged in Rome. Now, that sounds like good news for your Roman baron, right? No, not really. The problem is that most of the Roman aristocrats were thugs who could extract a bribe at knife point but struggled to correctly pronounce the fifth book of Moses. The Gregorian reform was all about improving the standards of the church. So, this had to change. Since Leo IX, the popes have stacked the College of Cardinals with well-trained and knowledgeable foreigners, i.e. non-Romans. The Pope Curia now reflected the width and breadth of Christendom, rather than just the city of Rome. And that meant all those bribes bypassed the Roman aristocracy and went to much worthier hands. The aristocrats were still attending the papal court, managed the city defences, and occasionally tilted elections. But the good times were no more. Now if you then take into account the downside of a papal presence in Rome, i.e. regular sieges and sackings by either emperors or Normans, for many of the older families, the balance had begun to tip heavily against being the seat of a reform-oriented servant of the servants of the apostles. The only way this could make sense for them was if they could place their own puppet on the throne of St. Peter. The most prominent representatives of this group were the members of the Frangipani clan. They had risen within the landowning elite, replacing the Crescenti and the Theophylacts. They held a number of castles in the Campania, and inside Rome, they held the area around the Colosseum, which they had turned into a heavily fortified town within a town. Whilst the old aristocracy was in decline and needed to reorient itself, another group had benefited from the Gregorian reform. A much more powerful international papacy needed bankers. These bankers were the Pier Leoni. The Pier Leoni were originally a Jewish family from Trastevere. Their ancestor, Leo de Benedicto, had allegedly been baptized by Pope Leo IX himself, hence the first name. They had continuously supported the Gregorian Reform Papacy and had become the by far richest people in Rome during the process. Their home was inside the city, no castles in the Campania. They owned the Tiber Island and two major fortifications on both shores, one of which was the ancient theatre of Marcellus and hence they controlled one of the two remaining Tiber bridges. Now everybody else in Rome, who was anybody, also lived either in a fortified Roman ruin or a more recent tower house within the walls of the city. The city was basically just an agglomeration of fortifications, not too dissimilar to other Italian cities of the time. 
The tensions between the Roman aristocrats and the papacy had been growing since 1046, when the Gregorian reform began. Until 1111, the local aristocrats had to grin and bear it, as impressive popes like Gregory VII and Urban II ruled the roost. But in 1111, Pope Charles II made that fateful offer to Henry V to hand back all the church fiefs, which turned out badly for the emperor, but even worse for Charles II. In the aftermath of the announcement of the deal, Pashalis had been captured by imperial soldiers and probably tortured until he had given up all the papal rights to the emperor. When Pashalis returned from the ordeal, his reputation was tarnished and he had no authority in Rome, which he had to flee from regularly. His only support in the city were the Pier Leoni, whilst the Frangipani were dead set against him. Pashalis died in 1118 and the Frangipani made their frustration felt. The cardinals had elected the former pope's chancellor as Pope Gelasius II. On the day of his election, the Frangipani captured him, put him into a windowless cell and tortured him mercilessly. Sensius Frangipani allegedly hissed at him like a giant snake, graped the pope by the throat, struck him with his fists, kicked him, drew blood with his spurs and dragged him away by his hair. Had he not been rescued by a mob paid for by the Pier Leone, Pope Gelasius would hold the record for the shortest pontificate. This way, he lasted a year and a half. In his last months, he could not hold the Vatican anymore, and hence celebrated Mass in the Church of San Presende, an amazing and truly ancient, but size-wise quite modest building. If you ever are in Rome, go there. It is a wonderful refuge from the hustle and bustle of the city. Anyway, while saying Mass, he was attacked, by Sensius Frangipani again, and only escaped on a swift horse. His attendants found him hours later, sitting in a field, muttering incoherently, still wearing his papal vestments. Gelasius had enough. He left Rome to travel to France, and died in the safety of the Abbey of Cluny. His successor, Calixtus II, was a much stronger personality, and achieved election by unanimous vote of all cardinals. That put him into a position to negotiate and agree the Concordat that finally ended the investiture controversy. Calixtus seemed to have been able to put temporary seal on the assaults on the papacy, seemingly by making friend with that old snake, Sensius Frangipani. Things blow up again on the day Calixtus II died in 1124. Both the Pier Leone and the Frangipani elected their respective candidates in two different churches in Rome. Another Frangipani, Roberto, entered the church where the Pier Leone candidate was about to be consecrated and cut down what would have become Pope Celestine II. Luckily, the almost pope survived, heavily injured, and resigned the papacy immediately. That leaves us with the pope the Frangipani had elected just before the attack. He took the name of Honorius II. Now this sounds if we're going back to the time before the Council of Sutri in 1046. You remember during that time the leading Roman families would put literally whoever they wanted on the papal throne, including some debauched adolescents or military thugs. Only if the emperor happened to be in the vicinity was some sort of standard upheld. But that is no longer the case. The church as an organization has become far too big, too complex and too powerful to be managed by a sexually incontinent layman. The Roman aristocrats recognized that if they wanted a puppet pope, they needed one that could nevertheless be respected across Christendom. 
who would bring in these lucrative court cases, the rich pilgrims and the generous donations. We are now entering this completely odd period in papal history, where on the one hand, the crowned heads of Europe are shaking in their boots at the slightest indication of papal displeasure, while the Pope himself can barely leave his fortified palace in Rome, assuming he is even admitted to the city. Now Honorius exactly fitted that bill. He was a rex to riches story, rising from probably peasant stock to the highest position in Christendom, on the back of great learning and exceptional political acumen. He had been a close associate of Calixtus II and had been entrusted with the all-important negotiations for the Concordat of Worms. He was well respected and during his pontificate was asked to decide on such crucial matters like the relative position of the Archbishop of York versus Canterbury, the formation of the Order of the Knights Templar and the deposition of the Abbot of Cluny. Now mentioning the Abbot of Cluny brings us to the other key development that changed the church landscape in the decades leading up to 1130, the rise of the reform movement 2.0. A few episodes ago we looked at whether the Gregorian reform was a revolution or a world revolution. One thing revolutions have in common is that, as time goes by, last year's radicals become today's conservatives and the extremists become the respected left. In the Middle Ages, this process was much slower, but it was still the same process. The church reform started out with the monastic reform in the 10th and 11th century, centered around the Abbey of Cluny in Burgundy, as well as some other monasteries, mainly in Lothringia and Germany. The reformers' objective was to bring back adherence to the rule of St. Benedict. They saw many monks and canons were slacking, which put everyone's chance to be admitted to heaven in jeopardy. The reason for that slacking is simple. Living under the rule of St. Benedict is hard. And I mean really hard. Monks are denied the three most basic human needs. To sleep, to eat and to procreate. The monks' day begins with prayers at midnight. And then prayers again at 3am, prayers at 6am, prayers at 9am, prayers at midday, prayers at 3pm, prayers at 6pm and prayers at 9pm. So that's every 3 hours, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And it wasn't just a quick prayer. It was often a full liturgy involving chanting and performing mass. The monks usually slept in their habits so they could quickly get up to attend mass. Between prayers they were expected to work. In terms of work, they had to accept the meanest of tasks as directed by the abbot. Food was restricted to two meals a day, with beef and lamb only available to the sick. And then you have to take the three vows of poverty, obedience and celibacy. The system was designed to eradicate any form of individual opinion, desires or even sense of self. The monk was to do as he was told by the abbot. Any form of disobedience or even the slightest sign of disapproval was ruthlessly punished. If your parents or friends sent you a care packet of food, having seen how meagre you have become on the relentless cycle of prayer, work and fasting, the abbot could distribute the goodies amongst the monks, or even hand the whole box to another monk. Any reaction, other than the enthusiastic approval, was considered disobedience. Now this lifestyle is by definition not sustainable, unless it is performed by an ever-replenished pool of religious zealots. But not all new monks were religious zealots. Some monks were the second sons of great patrons of the monastery, 
sent theirs children to pray for the family. Some of them bought into the monastic ideal, but not all. Another group of monks were retired aristocrats, too old to sit in the saddle and too worried about all the sins they've already committed. They would join the monastery at the end of their lives, a bit like an old people's home. They would find it difficult to adapt to the unrelenting lifestyle, the austerity and the hard work. And as Cluny and its daughter monasteries grew, the list of patrons grew and so did the number of less enthusiastic monks. Furthermore, all these patrons wanted to leave the monastery valuable donations. Individual monks were not allowed to have any personal property, but the monastery itself was able to accept these. And so, standards began to slip. Some monks were relieved from getting up in the middle of the night, food became plentiful, daily labour was passed on to the serfs. Within a few generations after the death of the initial great abbots, many a monastery had again become some sort of massively rich frat house. As regards Cluny, the focus of its founders had been the elaborate liturgy, which in turn required splendid churches. The only church in Western Europe that could rival the Abbey Church of Cluny in size and in splendour was the great imperial cathedral of Speyer. Building the Abbey Church nearly bankrupted this, probably the richest monastery in the world. As Cluny and its associate monasteries began to slack, those who still hankered for the true monastic ideal were looking elsewhere. This is Monastic Reform 2.0. One of the founders of these new communities we have already met, Norbert of Xanten, the founder of the Order of the Premonstratensians, whose first disciples did not survive, and who was now Archbishop of Magdeburg. But there was one even more impactful than Norbert. The towering ecclesiastical figure of this period was Bernard of Clairvaux, leader, not founder, of the Cistercian Order of the Strict Observance. Bernard had joined the reformist monastery of Citeaux near Dijon at the age of 22. When his friends and family tried to dissuade him from his decision, he not only made them agree with him, but convinced four of his brothers and another 25 followers to join him. Bernard was famous for his eloquence and rhetoric. My Latin is poor to non-existent, but I have been reliably informed that he was one of the greatest Latin stylists since antiquity. He quickly became the most charismatic preacher in the whole of Christendom during the 12th century. His sermons moved common people as well as church councils and even kings and emperors to do his bidding. These sermons were also quite odd. Bernard was a mystic. He looked for divinity in the experience of love. His most famous sermon was on the Song of Solomon, by far most explicitly sexual part of the Bible. For him, the song is about the marriage between the heavenly bridegroom, himself God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and his human bride. He yearns for, let him kiss me with a kiss of the mouth. And he says that what the bride, herself, all of humanity including himself, really desires and asks for is to be filled with the grace of this threefold knowledge, filled to the utmost capacity of mortal flesh. This physical mysticism remains a component of the Christian faith. If you want to see what St. Bernard may have had in mind, check out Bernini's Ecstasy of Santa Teresa in the Church of Santa Maria Vittoria in Rome. I know, it's not 12th century, but it does capture the spirit. Right. If you think medieval spirituality is a bit difficult to penetrate, here's another thing 
Bernard of Clairvaux was famous for, his ascetic lifestyle. His fasting habits were so austere that he ruined his digestive and intestinal system to the point that no food he consumed stayed with him for long. The monks of his abbey at Clairvaux dug a hole in the floor near where he would be seated during Mass since he rarely made it to the bathroom in time. Now that may sound disgusting, but people admired him for that. The fact that he had broken his body to the point of inflicting constant humiliation was a sign of his sainthood. You see, as with every revolution, the oddballs everyone laughed at last year are now mainstream. His order, the Cistercians, benefited from such a saintly leader and the communities expanded rapidly. Between the papal approval of the Cistercian order in 1119 and the death of St. Bernard in 1153, the number of Cistercian abbeys grew from 9 to 338. Cistercian abbeys were typically built in remote areas, in forests or difficult-to-reach valleys, where the monks would begin to cultivate the land with their own bare hands. In strong opposition to the order of Cluny, their churches were very austere and devoid of decoration, deriving their aesthetic appeal from the beauty of their proportions. If you want to get a feel for what they are like, check out the three monasteries of Sénanque, Silvacan and Le Tournay in Provence. It does not get any more Cistercian than that. Why am I telling you all these weird stories? Well, it is because St. Bernard is really, really important. He does influence events in the first half of the 12th century to the point that some historians see him as the true leader of Europe, above the Pope and above the Emperor. It may help you if you have an idea what kind of guy we're dealing with. To complete the picture, Bernard's mysticism was not the only brand of Christianity gaining ground in the 12th century. Its diametrical opposite was the emerging scholastic method. Where mysticism is all about an emotional link to the divinity, scholastics use logic to derive and define their faith. If I wanted to, or more accurately, if I could explain scholasticism in full, this episode would go on for an unbearably long time. There's hardly a topic in medieval history so heavily disputed and so complex as scholasticism. It seems many historians prefer to jump the subject entirely to avoid getting into hot water. No such cowardice here at the history of the Germans. But if I get it wrong, which I inevitably will, be gentle. After all, scholasticism is all about disputing two sides of an argument and agreeing on a harmonious solution. Okay, so let's get started. In my opinion, there are three features that define scholasticism. The first thing is that scholasticism is a method of resolving problems, not a theology. The scholastic method was applied to all of the medieval sciences, rhetoric, grammar, logic, as well as theology and law. Secondly, the scholastic method consists of two steps, the definition and the disputation. Definition is the process of determining exactly what the specific problem is you want to solve. That could range from does God exist to how many angels could dance on the pin of a needle. Important thing is the definition is precise. The definition also usually contains a hypothesis on how the problem is to be solved. Once a problem is defined, the analysis of the problem, the disputation, can begin. For that analysis, arguments are gathered, sick et non, i.e. for and against. In the disputation that follows, the scholars weigh the different arguments. The objective is not so much to win the debate, but to resolve the differences. The third feature of the scholastic method 
was the reliance on what was called authorities. These were texts, like the Bible, as the ultimate authority for theology, Cicero for rhetoric, Aristotle for logic, the Justinian code for law, etc. Now the great contribution of the early scholastics was to gather and organize the knowledge of the time by searching for ancient Greek texts in Muslim Spain, in Irish monasteries and in the libraries that had been set up by Charlemagne and then translating them into Latin. But it wasn't just the Greeks they were looking for. Islamic philosophers also played a major role. One of the authorities the scholastics rated most highly was Abu Iwalid Muhammad ibn Rushd, 1126-1198, in Latin referred to as Averroes, an Islamic scholar, jurist and polymath from Cordoba. Averroes' commentary on Aristotle's works was so universally acknowledged that he was often sometimes not even referred to by name, but simply as the commentator. The scholastics believed fundamentally that the ancients and the church fathers knew best. Hence arguments were based on their writings, and rarely on actual observable facts. It is that latter issue that has brought scholasticism in for a lot of negative publicity. Most egregiously were the medical doctors, who would prefer to rely on the books of Galen, 2nd century AD, rather than noticing that most of their patients died from their treatments. Now, scholasticism is not modern science, but it is miles, miles away from the purely spiritually driven faith of the Cistercians. What Bernard of Clairvaux was to the mystics was Peter Abelard amongst the early scholastics. The driving force of Abelard's philosophy was logic. He believed he could derive eternal truth by consolidating the truths inherent in authoritative texts. That led him, for instance, to conclude that the human intent is the yardstick of moral virtue, not the action as such. He published a book entitled Yes and No, where he highlighted obvious contradictions in the Bible and laid out arguments how to resolve them. The church did not like it one bit. Abelard was accused of heresy on multiple occasions and some of his books were burned. St. Bernard attacked Abelard directly. This man, he said, presumes to be able to comprehend by human reason the entirety of God. I doubt Abelard would have objected to this characterization. Where Bernard was a great demagogue who could whip up a crowd, Abelard won his debates through wit, intelligence and sharpness of thought. Abelard is best known today for an event during his early years as a teacher. His relationship with his pupil Eloise, the super smart niece of Fulbert, canon of Notre Dame, and Abelard's landlord. The two began an affair, very much on equal terms. Fulbert was none too happy about that and Abelard offered to marry Eloise. Eloise herself objected as it would mean Abelard would no longer be able to work as a teacher at the religious school of Notre Dame. Nevertheless, a marriage was conducted in secret, but somehow things with Fulbert did not calm down. Abelard had her brought to a nunnery in Argenteuil outside Paris to keep her safe. Fulbert saw some foul play in that and hired some thugs to find Abelard and to castrate him, which they did. Abelard subsequently became a monk. In 1130, he and Eloise published their love letters and the poems they had exchanged. Abelard finally wrote his own autobiography, making it the first in Europe since antiquity. One thing I like particularly about Abelard, and that is that he invented the concept of limbo. Limbo is the place where the children's souls go who die before they can be baptized. 
Before Abelard, the general view was that unbaptized children's souls would end up in hell. It must have caused untold grief for their parents, who felt forever guilty for not procuring a priest in time. But Abelard was by no means perfect. He and Eloise had a son, and they called him Astrolabe. Not much is known about him, but I guess the poor child must have been bullied mercilessly. Now, there you have it. The church is split three ways. Frangipani versus Pierleoni, old school Gregorians versus Cistercians, mystics versus scholastics. Each party had to take a side. Now the Pierleoni supported the old school Gregorian reformers and the scholastics. On the other side, you have the alliance of the Frangipani, the Reform 2.0 and the mystic Bernard of Clairvaux. Pope Honorius II had been able to keep a lid on all these tensions thanks to his personality and competence. But by 1130, Pope Honorius II is dying. Next episode will kick off with the death of Honorius II, which will let all these differences blow out into the open. Each side will put their Pope on the throne. One Pope will hold the Holy City, the other flees north. And that leaves our friend Lothar in a dilemma. He is no theologian, but he needs something from the Pope, and that is the imperial crown. But which of the two popes should he ask for it? The one who is holding the city of Rome, or the one Bernard of Clairvaux is supporting? Going with the first one makes for an easy journey to Rome, but a return to a homeland where the silver-tank Bernard whips up the crowds against him. Going with the second pope means you need first to take the eternal city or at least enough of it to stage a coronation. And then there is the question what concessions Lothar can get from either candidate. Maybe there is a chance to finally gain back what had been lost in the investiture controversy. A return to the glory days of Henry III? Well, I hope you're going to join us again next week when we find out. And in the meantime, should you feel like supporting the show and get hold of these bonus episodes, sign up on Patreon. The links are in the show notes or on my website at historyofthegermans.com.